0: Welcome to the Rory's Nitro Podcast, the show that rips up the TV ratings and buy rates and declares our own winner in some of pro wrestling's biggest head-to-head battles. I'm your host, Lee Carlos Cunningham, coming fresh off a fantastic night, watching Manchester City dismantle Watford 6-0 and attending WWE Live here in Brisbane with...
1: The Legit Boss, Mika Cunningham.
0: For those of you that don't know, that is my beautiful five-year-old daughter, Mika, who's just been to her second WWE Live event now after falling asleep during NXT last year on the Gold Coast and had an awesome time. So tell me, Mika, who was your favourite wrestler? The legit boss. And do you like any other wrestlers that weren't there last night? Bailey. And last question, Mika, did you have a good time attending WWE Live? Yes. Before Mika departs the show, she just wants to send one quick shout out before we get started. Hi Mark and Laura.
1: I love you.
0: There we go. Mika sending a special shout out to two of her biggest fans. And now it's time to get on with the show. So, this week's show is another one of them calamitous shows that I've had some trouble with in the past where I just forget myself. I watched Raw first because I'm sick of Eric Bischoff spoiling Nitro, and went along to the March 4, 1996 episode of Raw to continue on our timeline towards WrestleMania 12, and got through the whole show went to put nitro on and realized that this was a nitro I told you all was being preempted for the civil war documentary so tonight here on the Roy's Nitro podcast we're going to pit the raw from March 4 1996 up against that civil war documentary strap yourselves in no 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 i'm just kidding i didn't really go and watch a civil war documentary i don't even know if i could find it if i wanted to um i had a little bit of a dilemma because i went over to flick to ecw like i normally do in this uh, predicament um The ECW show was another one of them clip shows from Cyberslam 96, and I didn't really want to recap, you know, highlight packages from a pay-per-view, because A, it's boring as shit, and B, none of you really want to hear that anyway. There's no angles or anything to talk about when you get that. So I thought, what can I do? Um, I actually flicked back to where I was up to in my starting raw from the beginning timeline, just for my own personal watching. I realized I was up to The 4th of July show, 1994 I was off King of the Ring and on the way To SummerSlam, '94. this was before Monthly pay-per-views, obviously I thought, why not? I'll just go back 18 months Watch this show, or, you know, nearly Two years, see what was going on And compare Raw in 96 to Raw In 94, so the sort of beginning and end almost of the new generation, and let's see whether or not they've improved, gotten worse, um, if they're back on the upswing, or exactly how the two time periods fare against each other. So that's what we're going to look at today. So I've done a little bit of searching, and I'm struggling to find the ratings for the 1994 episode, but the 1996 episode that gets unopposed thanks to the preemption of Nitro actually draws a 3.5, which is, I think, the biggest rating so far in 1996, so it definitely helps having a little bit of added viewership, though it doesn't, you know, sort of stack on a lot of the Nitro viewers. A lot of them simply didn't tune in, but the ones that would flick between the two have obviously come across. Now, I watched the 1996 episode of Raw first, so that's where we're going to head. And let's do that right now. So the 96 episode of Raw opens up with a little bit of a video package of what's to come, including uh, Vince sort of inferring that we're going to see The Ultimate Warrior tonight, which was very interesting for myself. We're going to see Goldust, Ted DiBiase, Brett and Sean both in action, as well as possibly squaring off. And that's where we start the, the night right away. We've got Shawn Michaels versus The 1-2-3 Kid, which is an opening that I got very excited for. Vince and Lawler are obviously even more excited than me during the entrances. Kid's out first, and then Shawn Michaels comes out. And Kid attempts to jump him during his entrance, but Michael just sort of backdrops him over the top rope and then carries on with his entrance as though nothing happens. And he milks this for all it's worth. He is going for a long, long time. And Vince has soiled his trousers at least once during this time. When the match finally does get underway, Kid opens us up with a headlock takedown for a two-count, does that twice and gets two two two-counts from it, then a leg uh, leg drop, a leapfrog, sorry, an elbow, and then a spin kick for a two-count. Before Sean comes back with a sunset flip for a two-count, a few arm drags and then a big press slam on the kid. He cactus clotheslines the kid over the top rope but skins the cat back in, and then we get some replays of what's going on just in the middle of the match quite randomly, which is not typical for Raw and not something that I enjoyed here. We see Bret Hart watching on a television monitor backstage, and we see Sean hit a power slam for a two count. The kid comes back with a spin kick before drop kicking Shawn Michaels out of the ring. He hits a springboard plancher to the floor, which is quite cool, and this allows Ted DiBiase to get some cheap shots as the kid distracts the referee back inside the ring we hit his patented kick combo that he would use a lot more as x Park later on but sadly he does not follow this up with the bronco buster or a crotch chop as we go to a commercial break when we come back the kids locking in a chin lock before hitting an enziguri on Shawn for a two count Shawn then fires back with a big forearm and a kip up and hits some punches and then a moonsault and some mounted punches before hitting another flying forearm a top rope elbow and the kid runs out of the ring to avoid sweet chin music Michaels comes back in and kid gets one last flurry of offense with some punches and a slam before missing a leg drop off the top rope, allowing Sean to get up and finally hit sweet gym music for the 1 2 3 in a very good opener. Um, I probably rushed through the moves a little bit quicker. It was a, you know, a good sort of 10 to 12 minute match, I think off the top of my head, but it was a really fast paced opener with both guys getting a lot of moves. The only real downside to it, I guess, is Sean sort of not really selling the kid as a credible opponent and sort of laughing and mocking him during the, the way, but the kid did get a lot a lot of offense and look strong here. Sean then does something that I didn't really like about him at this time in his career. He brings a little girl into the ring to dance with. Her. I just, I don't know. I find it hard to find him cool when he's sort of doing stripper dances with preteen girls in the ring in oversized Shawn Michaels t-shirts that had obviously been thrown from Doc Hendricks and Todd Pettengale shilling out the back. So I don't know. It's not for me that side of him. I liked him better with a harder edge personally, but good opening contest and, you know, sort of a good tune-up for him on the way to Wrestlemania. From here we go to our most disgusting segment of the night, and that is Gold dust uh, presenting a film which is him as Pi- Roddy Piper on Piper's Pit, and I was originally just going to play the clip for you, but it's long and pretty skin-crawling, so go back and watch it if you want to watch it basically he's got a kilton in his gold dust outfit he insinuates that when ruddy piper made the coconut burst on jimmy snooker's head that he burst with passion so i'll let you um figure that one out for yourself um he said that the movie they live made him hard so that's great as well and he says that if piper's lucky there'll be one more surprise and he pulls out a set of bad bagpipes and sucks on the end as though he's giving it a blowjob so there you go Goldust basically holding nothing back in his feud here with Rowdy Roddy Piper in probably the most unnerving, disgusting piece of wrestling that I can remember in a long time. I mean, it's not got the ridiculousness of something like a Katie Vick where you can laugh at it. It's just really, just makes you feel dirty. So we go to a commercial break and I'm going to move on. And then we get some hype of The Ultimate Warrior from Vince McMahon, including... This little doozy about when he talks about some of his career highlights, defeating the self professed immortal at WrestleMania 6. Ouch, way to stick the knife into the Hulkster, Vince. We then get told that next week we're going to see the Undertaker team with Yoko Zuna, who's had a lengthy feud with him in the past to take on the British Bulldog and Owen Hart, so that should be a pretty cool match. We're told Roddy Piper's going to be on after the commercial break. Then we get the entrance of Hakushi for a match before going to said commercial break. When we come back, Hokushi's opponent makes his way to the ring, and it's the debuting on Monday Night Raw, Justin Hawke Bradshaw with his manager Zeb, sorry, Uncle Zebediah. Um, trying to get myself some Jack Swagger flashbacks here. Anywho, pretty cool to see the debut of Bradshaw here. This was one I didn't know happened quite this soon. So the fresh faces are coming thick and fast here on Raw in the last few months. It's really good to see, and starting to liven it up. The the ones you become sort of familiar with later on, JBL or jhb as i guess he would be here now goes on the offense early with some strikes uh before we get piper on the phone really early into the match and it kind of disrupted the rhythm of seeing a new guy while the commentators were talking to piper about gold dust he tells us he'll be on the show live next week to confront gold dust tells us he'll be on the show live next week to confirm who the ultimate warrior will face at wrestlemania and he did sort of announce himself as being there twice during the phone call it wasn't a misstep on my part there. It was a little bit weird. In the match, Bradshaw is dominating, but it's a little bit slow. Before he comes on with a pump handle slam, a leg drop and an elbow, Hakushi comes back with some corner strikes and a handspring elbow, but when he comes running at Bradshaw, eats a massive boot. Hakushi comes back with a plunger to the outside, but JBL then slams him back first onto the apron on the outside twice and then onto the floor with a power slam. Really nasty looking spot. Back in the ring, he hits a big boot and what would later become the clothesline from hell for the 1-2-3. And then for some reason, they hog him at the boots and Hakushi is not moving as they brand him. So he doesn't sell any pain that he's been burnt, but the big Bradshaw logo goes onto him. It's a little bit of a lame sort of after-match deal, but it is what it is. And then we go to the next in the series of vignettes about the debuting Mankind. So, as I said, lots of fresh faces coming on the scene and Raw is hotting up nicely. We're also then told that next week on WWF Mania, there will be a guest host, and that will be Sunny. So she's starting to become in part of the package here with the WWF. They get a little bit of sex appeal going into 96, end of 96, start of 97, and that obviously really takes off during the Attitude Era.
1: We be a force to the World Wrestling Federation, however... Of a force to be reckoned with. Let's well, take a look, ladies and gentlemen, and mankind. Didn't he realize I could hear through those walls? Mommy tried to make excuses, but he said I was a boy no longer, that I was becoming dangerous, and my emotions would have to be numbed. So I paid him a visit. I'll never forget the fear in his eyes as he whimpered, What kind of man could do this? No kind of man, holy mankind, could be this evil. And the deceit and the treachery that has been spread throughout the millennium and has taken form on my disfigured frame is about to be paid back to the perpetrators. (laughs) When that time is at hand, no one will have a nice day.
0: We then get the entrances for Triple H versus Bret the Hitman Hart, but before we start the matchup, we go to a commercial break, and when we come back, Doc Hendricks is shilling the Wrestlemania 12 chair that you can only get at Wrestlemania 12 or this week for $80 plus shipping and handling. The match gets underway and Triple H refuses to give a clean break, and Bret then fires back with some blows, a second rope clothesline, headbutt, a snapmare, and begins working over Hunter's arm. Sean comes out to watch, planting a chair right in front of the ring, and we go to a commercial break. Brett comes back with an arm drag and a crossbody for a two count, before Triple H tosses Brett Hart next to Sean Michaels, and Sean points out Triple H coming flying off the apron so Brett can turn and deliver a gut punch. Back in the ring, Triple H hits his high knee, before Brett Hart comes back with a Irish whip. Unfortunately, it's reversed, and he takes one of his signature turnbuckle bumps, before Triple H then throws him to the other side for the same again. Triple H goes up top and comes off with a flying nothing, eating Brett's boot, allowing Brett to come back with the bulldog, and elbow off the second for a two-count. Triple H gets a roll-up for a two-count before Brett turns him into the sharpshooter for the submission victory, and that's Bret and Shawn both victorious against, well, against Click members and former DX members later on, on this night on the road to WrestleMania. We then go to our final segment of the night, which is TV trivia. It's a mock game show pitting a blonde woman who I don't know. I don't know if it was meant to be winding someone up or not up against Ted Turner. And basically the gist of the whole show is, can you guess who said this quote? And it's racist, sexist, homophobic quotes, etc. That catch and the, the laugh being that they're all said by Ted Turner and he's trying to blame other people for them. It's pretty shit, but I'll play you a very small clip just so you can see what you're missing out on.
1: Ted, next question. Who made the racial comment, as for blacks, well, most of them are not really black anyway. They're brown. Well, aren't they? It's very seldom you see a really black black. Oh, Michael Jackson. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) That's funny, billionaire Ted. Right again. Next question. What often-married person said, Henry VIII didn't get divorced, he just had his wife's heads chopped off when he got tired of them. That's a good way to get rid of a woman. No alimony. Yeah,
0: well, that, was my, uh, that was my buddy O.J., yeah.
1: Shame on you, Billionaire Ted. Yes, the correct answer is Billionaire Ted.
0: So as you can see, The end of Raw, hilarity definitely ensued with the Billionaire Ted segment. It was just, oh, it was amazing. In actuality, it was a really shit ending to what was a really good night of wrestling. I mean, the middle match, there's only three matches. The middle match, it wasn't anything special, but it was a good debut for a big guy that would go on to be a pretty important part of the company. And we got two awesome workers opening the show in Sean and the 123 Kid, and two pretty good workers, or I should say awesome workers. Triple H probably wasn't at this time. Brett obviously was in the main event. So we got solid wrestling all night good storyline build and no nonsense no filler no really you know even hakushi the one doing the job to bradshaw still a good name um it could have been a solid solid show possibly one of the better ones of 96 and we spend the last five or six minutes of the show on that billionaire ted bullshit Oh, when Vince gets a bee in his bonnet, he just doesn't let it go. And this was really to the detriment of the show on this occasion. Because other than that, this was one of the better episodes of Raw in a while. Airing unopposed to Nitro, they really should have finished with a bang and kept some people hooked. Instead, they spent the night that they're free of Nitro, ending their show reminding everybody of bloody Nitro. It just... Words can't describe, but other than that, a fantastic episode of Raw for the time period. These hour-long shows, you get a couple of good matches, and normally you're raving about it. You get three matches you're happy with and no filler, and no complaints whatsoever, so really good stuff. Let's go back in time and see what 1994's got to offer in comparison. That intro intro song there can only mean one thing and that's we are going to be spending a considerable amount of time with Tatanka on this episode of Monday Night Raw. So as mentioned earlier, we're going back to the 4th of July 1994 for the comparison today and we are on Independence Day. Gorilla Monsoon and the Macho Man Randy Savage dressed in a very USA red, white and blue outfit are the commentators for the show. We've got a little bit of a rundown of what's going to take place including a match with Ted DiBiase's Undertaker. Long time fans will know that this. This was the under faker angle. And then we go to our opening contest of the evening. Jeff Jarrett up against Tatanka. We get the classic neon entrance for the competitors to come through at the start of the ramp. And that just warms the heart a little bit there as well. I love it. Um, Jeff Jarrett and Tatanka, two guys back here, which I really had no fondness for whatsoever. Jeff Jarrett, I sort of grew on a little bit. Still never really bought him as a world title competitor, but I did think he was a solid upper card heel. Tatanka, it took until about 2006 before I really appreciated him, seeing him on the screen with his brief allegiance with Matt Hardy. Jeff Jarrett, of course, here is in his Ain't I Great? The phase. Uh, he's going to use the WWF to shoot two country music superstardom. That was his opening gimmick, believe it or not, in the Fed. And Tatanka attacks early, including a nice power slam for a two count. Then a vertical suplex, which Gorilla Monsoon predates Brock Lesnar by a couple of decades by saying, suplex city, and gets a two count. We get a couple of drop toe holds and then a chin lock before Jeff Jarrett fires back with a shoulder. Tatanka hits a Japanese arm drag, followed by some chops and a headlock, and the headlock is a long spot. Grilla Monsoon and Macho Man really start to get on my nerves during this period, because there's just nothing happening. Tatanka comes back with more chops before Jeff Jarrett tosses him outside the ring. They brawl along the outside, and Jarrett works over the back a little bit, before sending Tatanka into the ring post and gaining the count-out victory. But, oh no, Jeff Jarrett gets on the microphone and says he didn't come here to win that way. He wants his arms raised after winning in the center of the ring and convinces the referee to continue the match. We go to a commercial break and when we come back, Jarrett's in a chin lock. Tatanko gets out of it and puts him in a sleeper before Jeff Jarrett comes back with a clothesline for a two count and then locks in a sleeper of his own. A long, long sleeper spot here. And Gorilla Monsoon quips to the macho man, do you think his daddy taught him that move? Jeff Jarrett's dad, Jerry Jarrett, um... I imagine was probably working in the Federation at this time. There's been a lot of rumours that he was going to be the man to take over the company if Vince went to jail during the steroid trial, Um, but that is still debated to this day. Why they took a little bit of a jab at him there, I'm not quite sure. Tatanka then Native Americans up, or hulks up, or whatever you want to call it for him, hits some chops and a DDT for a two count. A top rope chop for a two count. Jeff Jarrett gets his foot on the ropes to avoid the pinfall. Jarrett goes to leave the ring, and in an absolutely terrible finish to the match Dink creeps up behind him in the aisle sprays him with water out of a flower on his chest and when Jeff Jarrett goes to chase Dink through the curtain doink walks out with a bucket of water Jarrett backs off and doesn't want to meet the bucket of water. Doink backs him all the way into the ring, where Tatanka rolls him up for the 1-2-3. A 16-minute Jeff Jarrett versus Tatanka match finished when Dink sprayed Jarrett in in the eyes with water. Doink threatened him with a bucket, and Tatanka rolled him up after Jarrett had already earned a legitimate victory through countout. Who the fuck booked this shit? And Please get Vince back off the steroid trial thankfully then we go to a commercial break and give the crowd and the viewers a bit of a chance to unwind when we come back the one two three kid is a guest on king's court jerry the king lawless interview segment he was doing here in his early the early portion of his run. basically this is a bit of a long boring segment going back and forth where King keeps on telling one, two, three kid he has his support to beat Brett. The kid keeps telling the king he won't cheat. King keeps telling him to cheat and win it for me. Kid keeps telling him he won't win it for him because he doesn't like him. It's a very dull back and forth. The kid's too goody-goody here and... It just really makes for a boring segment, because nothing really happens. We could do with the, you know, had the King sort of pushed too far and the kid hit him with a spin kick or something, it would have been okay, but nothing came of it. It was just a boring argument, and King's far better on the mic, so it didn't make the kid look good at all. We then get a little bit of a sell job for the live events, which they're calling the Summer Sizzler Tour back in 1994. I imagine you could see Brett Noah and work for the title on that tour, so it would have been worthwhile going to see for that alone. Before we go to our next matchup, up Jim the Anvil Nightheart with the King of the Ring, Owen Hart, coming out to face Gary Scott. The Anvil hits strikes in a backdrop, and the March man has a good line on Owen races. He He's not the Lion King, but he is a Lion King, which I thought was pretty funny for March. Anvil starts biting Gary Scott, really sort of healing it up. The crowd, big chance of we want Brett. Anvil power slams him into the turnbuckles and then hooks him up in a tree of woe, hits some stumps, takes him out and hits him with a regular power slam for the 1-2-3. Good squash match showcasing the Anvil's strength there. Our next match, on the other hand, is Duke the Dumpster Drozzy taking on I Am Mike Sharp. This is not something I was looking forward to. Mike Sharp can't get a slam in the early portions of the match, which Duke then slams him with ease, hits an atomic drop, and hits his head into the turnbuckle ten times before walking him to another turnbuckle and hitting his head into the thing ten times. This is a very basic match. It's like first week wrestling school moves for Duke. Speaking of which, he hits a clothesline, a back elbow, a pretty poor suplex. Mike Sharp gets a foot on the ropes though. Then Mike Sharp begins to choke him on the ropes before Duke hits him with a backdrop and a slam. Followed by an elbow drop for the one, two, three. Yes, that's right. Duke finished him off with an elbow drop. Even with someone, an enhancement talent there to put you over, he didn't look good at all. I can see really why he didn't last. Between being a garbage man and not very fun in the ring, there's not much to get behind. Then we go backstage for a quick vignette. Ted DiBiase saying that his Undertaker will be out next before we go to our next commercial break. When we come back, we get an absolute staple of my childhood and a little... Um, Pretty well known um, ad segment, or whatever you might call it here, vignette, which I'm sure most of you will remember, but we've got to play it played anyway because it's just absolute gold.
1: Dad, look! It's Brett the Hitman Heart! Brett! Go get him, champ!
0: Yeah, the classic kid calling out to Brett and Brett putting his sunglasses on him backstage before walking through the curtain. Really cool ad. I think um, this was being done at the time to showcase that the WWF stars weren't too big to interact with their fans because I've heard a lot of stories from the time about WCW guys charging for autographs or refusing them, so this was a kind of subtle shot that the WWF guys were really wholesome, worthwhile athletes, and the WCW guys were money-chasing mercenaries, which is probably still the narrative they'd have you believe today anyway. We then go to our main event of the evening, The Undertaker versus Mike Bell. So this is Ted DiBiase's Undertaker, who was Brian Lee, a longtime friend of The Undertaker, better known as Chains, a member of the DOA, good friends and cousins, in fact, with Ron and Don Harris man, I can't wait till we get to the time period where the DOA is in the WWF. That's the golden era for me. But even then, I could not stand them. So I'm looking forward to getting in on some of that action. DOA and Los because the matches maybe not, but the discussions will be good. Anyway, Ted DiBiase comes out to the ring with The Undertaker. And during the entrance, I have to say, I'm trying to, you know, it's hard knowing with hindsight, looking back at it. But I'm, I'm thinking, if I was a kid then, I wouldn't be able to tell this apart from The Undertaker. The imp- the impression was pretty well spot on during the entrance. We get into the ring, and he starts to beat on Bell a little bit, and puts him into choke, which was really good. Grilla Monsoon on commentary says something very unusual, that the Million Dollar Man originally brought The Undertaker to the WWF, before selling him to Mr. Fuji, who in turn, turn sold him to Brother Love, who passed him off to Paul Bearer. Now, I'm pretty sure Brother Love was there with Ted DiBiase on the intro of the undertaker at the '90 survivor series in fact i know it was i do not believe that mr fuji was ever a part of this package i think DiBiase brought him in as a mystery partner with his manager brother love who then handed him over to paul bearer i'm certain that's what happened i remember this quite vividly and i've never heard anyone say anything about fuji so if you know what gorilla monsoon's talking about please do get in touch because i'm fascinated by this comment but i think it's just gorilla being gorilla Undertaker then comes off with some moves here. He gets a drop toe hold, which I don't recall seeing the Undertaker do very often, but that's probably just my memory. A slam and an elbow drop before going up for old school. Now, it's here where the impersonation maybe comes down a tad because he does not look confident on old school and doesn't go as far along the ropes. And, of course, flying off, you see the hair actually flies out of his eyes and you get a better look at his face. Uh, When the hair is over his face, it is a much closer looking Undertaker, but when it flies out, not so much. Um, we get the patented undertaker spot where he stalks a referee who's trying to break him up from choking. And that's a little awkward looking as well. And maybe I start to nitpick here, but these are the things that i'm looking at he hits a flying clothesline which is, again is not quite undertaker-esque and then hits a tombstone and when he puts the arms on the chest he sort of slams them down the undertaker when doing this was very cold and and slow so i gave him probably about a seven out of ten on the impersonation it was good but when the more you could see his face the more he was exposed it should have been kept short and sweet and against small jobbers and we'll talk about that in a second Ted gets in with a body bag and some money, but we see Paul Bearer come down the aisle. Paul Bearer gets on the ring steps and starts to call the Undertaker towards him with the urn. And Undertaker slowly walks towards him. DBossi tries to talk him back with some money, but it doesn't work. He then goes and gets more money out and does manage to talk him back and keep him before we go to a commercial break. When we come back from the commercial, Ted's Oh, sorry, the commercial was actually during the, the disagreement backwards and forwards about who was going to get him. i tell a lie there. But when we come back, The Undertaker is face-to-face with Ted DiBiase, and they're pretty much the same height. And this is a real kayfabe killer here. They probably shouldn't have had them face-to-face at any stage. DiBiase should have just been walking behind him or, you know, put some lifts in The Undertaker's boots because that's probably the biggest killer that you can tell. It's definitely not the real Undertaker. We have another commercial break, and we come back and find out Jerry Lawler um, is convincing Ted DiBiase to come on his Kings Court next week, but Ted DiBiase doesn't want to do it in the ring in front of all the peons, so they're going to have a special segment somewhere else. And then we end with a shot of the American flag hanging over the ring to celebrate 4th of July. So that'll wrap us up for the 94 4th of July episode of Raw. That's the head-to-head. Let's go and find out which one really had the better show. But before we do, just a couple of comments on this whole angle with the fake Undertaker. I was there when, when
1: they actually killed the Undertaker at Royal Rumble and he, did, he ascended to the heavens. And I was and there were fifteen people killing him, and, and you had to stand there and watch it, and I had to stand there and watch it. And then he suddenly becomes a ghost and wanders up to heaven, and I'm going there. Never going to believe this back in Knoxville. Oh Lord! But then <laughs> we had the, 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 we had another undertaker, Brian Lee. Yeah, under The undertaker He was he was mine at that time. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. Do you remember? I think this is probably not telling anything that most people don't know about Brian. Um. The classic incident where he was arrested for in Nashville, Tennessee, for a variety of domestic disturbances and told the cops that he was the WWF's undertaker and please let him go. And they didn't let him go, but it made the news in Nashville, the TV oh. news. WWF's undertaker is arrested for violent domestic snabits' I mean, favorites. Mark was not a happy. Little to put some things in perspective. Brian Lee was is, was and still is a dear friend of Mark's. Yeah, and, and he and was his best man in his wedding. And and Brian got several jobs only because of Mark, right. To begin with. And not only did he do that in Nashville, in Temp- Mark lived in Tampa for a while, and <laughs> Brian Lee was around there. And uh, and in fact, when Taker was on the road full time in the, in the early years, uh, Mark paid Brian to take care of his house and, yeah. and, and, and his animals and his dogs and this and that and the other. I mean, that's how close they were. Back to they all ended up in Tampa uh, several years down the road, and Brian was doing the same thing then. He would tell people he was the Undertaker. You know, Mark would go somewhere, whether it would be the the doctor or or in the airport or something. Oh, we saw you the other day. You know, or somebody met you. You know, you're we met you, Mark. But he looked like he was a little bit shorter. You know, and it was Brian Lee telling people that that he was, you know, the Undertaker. Oh yeah.
0: So, that's the two shows in the bag and now it's time we picked ourselves a winner. As usual, we're going across the five categories to decide which of the two shows was the better on the respre- on the respective on the respective nights for this one. The crowd heat I've got to go with. Oh, it's a close one, but I'd say I probably have to go a tie on this. I think the Wrestling got the crowd more invested in 96, but the wanting of Brett when the Anvil and Owen were out there and the heat they generated and the crowd buying into the whole power struggle between Paul Bear and Ted DiBiase for The Undertaker really brought 1994 back to life. Um, 1996 crowd definitely loved Sean and loved Brett, but they probably didn't pop for the stuff that was quite as poor as in 94. So I'm going to go with a tie on that one. Nothing really to separate either of them. Production value, I'm actually going to go with 94 just because they didn't end on Billionaire Ted. Now, they did go to a commercial break and then come back and pretty much just say one thing's happening next week, goodbye, which was something Raw used to do quite a bit back in the early 90s, which baffled me. But I think overall, um, the whole 94 package was just a little bit better, ending on something that the crowd was really invested in. So we're going to give them a win in that category there. Storyline advancement, however, is firmly in the camp of 1996. While 94 did continue the Undertaker storyline quite nicely and give some screen time to Anvil and Owen as a duo, 96 built towards WrestleMania quite magically. Um, Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart still have this begrudging respect, but there was enough seeds of resentment being sown in the Bret interview during the Shawn match and the Shawn Michaels appearing during Bret's match. They didn't come to blows yet, and this is great because they're saving it for Mania, but there is enough there to think there's some building tension and that the match is going to be worthwhile paying your money for. Characters, of course, has to go to 1996 because all their matches were name affairs, whereas 94 featured Mike Sharp, Gary Scott, Mike Bell in the final three matches, and Jeff Jarrett to Tatanka being the only name versus name match on the night, and it went for far, far too long. So 96 gets another win there, which takes us to our last category, which is match quality. Match quality definitely goes to 1996, um, Brett and Sean facing off against the Kid and Triple H is a much, much better prospect than the Jobber Squashes we got back in 94, although there is a lot to be said for those Jobber Squashes, I just don't think you can really do three in a row and have your flagship program be as enjoyable as it could be. But overall, it was a little bit closer than I thought it would be. 94 going into 95 is really the dregs of the WWF. I'm sure if I'd have landed in the middle of these two shows, it would have been worse than both of them, but this is what we got and I think 96 is definitely heading in the right direction though it's not as far away as we will get by the end of the year and early 1997. That will do it for today's episode thank you all for listening I know I've not been on here quite as much as I would have liked recently but there's going to be a lot of shows coming your way in the next few weeks so stay tuned um, as always get in touch on Twitter on Facebook drop us an email at Pod at hotmail.com um, and leave us a five-star review on iTunes if you can because that's what really helps the show grow and that's the number one thing we're looking at for the next sort of six to twelve months is can we get the listenership up and make the show viable um just really want to keep keep it growing and keep us going in the right direction i won't babble any longer thank you all for listening and i'll speak to you all again very very soon
1: yeah, what's up, nephew? just sitting in the doghouse chopping game with my nephew, badass and little half-dead And it seems that the game ain't got us confused or mixed up So I wanna let everybody out there know what time it is HD I don't want anybody to get the wrong idea
0: about me I don't have nothing to hide, I want the world to see I'm a gang, gang
1: My dollars popping collars with the smack and slacking. It's two revolvers, see, we smoking going home. Cause the bitch ain't ever shit to me. A pussy stay selling, so I never let it get to me. The shit to me is simple. It relies on credentials. We credible individuals ahead of you. We original, better known as criminals. Thugging off on the cereal, killing them on the radio. Some of them want to hate the Fucking cause they can't see me knowing. Here we go again. The jealousy took you over success. Just keep you slower. While you get nothing, we keep getting more. Pump, pump the jammer. Drop, drop the top. Hit, hit, the switch. Just smash down the block. No, it's Long Beach, so you know when you see a nigga And don't never get the wrong idea, nigga
0: Yeah, nigga,
1: what? How? I don't want anybody to get the wrong idea about me I don't have nothing to hide, I want the world to see I'm a gangster, 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 do your dance Sing I'm I keep my khakis crazy hat tilted to the east On the bitch I remain the beast None the least, police try to cuff me And stuff me in the back of they patrol car Cause I'm a former for star. What's the cool name, this nigga here's a fool man Go and do your thing, gang bang
0: in the hood and in Hollywood Record company executives think it's all to the good Get to showing me around their house then he slide me in the back and had it know and to try to buy me out How much? Check this out, man I'm down with P and D.R.E a real nigga from the motherfucking L.B.C I just look like this I stay down for the twist I'm real with this Deep as a bitch I gave you a pound Then I gave your wife a kiss I had to dip because y'all was full of that bullshit
1: Now I don't want anybody To get the wrong idea about me I don't have nothing to hide I want the world to see I'm a gangster Gangster Gangsta niggas do your dance. Yeah. Gangsta bitches wave your hands. Don't want anybody to get the wrong idea about me. I don't have nothing to hide. I want the
0: world to see. I'm a gangster. Gangster. Gangster niggas do your dance.
1: Yeah. Yeah. dance. Gangsta bitches wave your hands. Yeah. It's the wrong idea about me. I don't have nothing to hide. I want the world to see.
0: I'm a gangster,
1: gangster. Gangster niggas do your thing. See what we gangster bitches, weighing your pain. They got the truth. They got the truth. They got the truth, 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 truth. Oh, my little homie. I want to see you come on